We have been in the book of Matthew, a very fascinating book, as all the Bibles, the books of the Bible are. And we're learning more and more about grace and sovereignty, and the sovereignty of God, right? And so, as we kind of do a recap of the book of Matthew, we see how the question was kind of sparked by uh, Peter in chapter 18 when he asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus pulls a, a child and says, here, you know, here's the greatest in the kingdom. And so it's, it's amazing how he uses a child to illustrate his point. And we move on to chapter 19, and now we're in chapter 20. And you can still see, when I was preparing this, how, how amazing God is as far as demonstrating who he is. Amen? And so we, we see that uh, in the book of Matthew, we've been, we've been learning about the, the topic of, of grace, actually. As we look at how Jesus dealt with people in it, some of his parables, we're discovering that these grace encounters radically changed people's lives 2,000 years ago, and it's still radically changing lives today. About two weeks ago, we discovered from Jesus' interaction with children that grace is granted to us in spite of what we do or who we are. It doesn't carry a certain status. It's not based on uh, materialistic things that you may acquire in life. Because even those things are grace of God. It's not anything that you do that you can earn anything from God. Most religions teach you that, that there's a set of rules and regulations that we have to follow to appease God. But thank God that our God did those things for us. Amen? So, as we see how lives are radically changed, as I was mentioning about two weeks ago, we discovered Jesus' interaction with children, that grace is granted to us in spite of what we do or even who we are. And just as Jesus was gracious toward children, so too we are to let them come and we're to learn from them and we're to love them also. We also established that we receive grace when we're born again. Another thing that happens when we're born again is the fact that we're justified instantaneously. That's not a process. A lot of times we get these things confused. Sanctification, on the other hand, is something that is continuous over the course of a believer's lifetime. Right? So justification is instant. We also establish that receiving grace, we're born again, that this saving grace is not something we can earn a work, work for, it's a free gift given by a gracious God. What's so amazing about grace? It's been said that Christianity is supremely a religion of grace, and that is certainly true. But even so, grace is not well understood and often not really believed. Let me iterate on that one. We use the word a great deal, but rarely about what it means, right? We know that it's a free gift of God, but what is grace? Again, it's not anything based on our merit, nothing that we work for, 
In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, I use that quite often because that's the best description of God's grace. We're saved by grace through faith. And that, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, lest, not of works, lest any man should boast. See? You see, a part of our problem is the nature of grace. Grace is scandalous. It's hard to accept and hard to believe and hard to receive. Grace shocks us in what it offers. It is truly not of this world, and it frightens us with what it does for sinners. Grace teaches us that God does for others that we would never do for them, right? We would would save the not-so-bad, those we kind of get along with. We would save them. God starts with the, 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 the low, the scum of what society calls scum of the earth, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the murderers, and so on and so forth. Huh. Grace is a gift that costs everything to the giver and nothing to the receiver. Understand that? It is given to those who don't deserve it barely recognize it, and hardly appreciate it. That's why God alone gets the glory in our salvation. Jesus did all the work when he died on the cross. In the end, grace means that no one is too bad to be saved. I'm a prime example of that. Amen. God specializes in saving really bad people. Do you have some things in your life or background that you would be ashamed to talk about in public? I do. But fear not, God knows all about it, and his grace is greater than all our sin. We sing that song quite often. Grace also means that some people may be too good to be saved. What do you mean, preacher? What do you mean by that? That is, they may have such high opinions of themselves that they think they don't need God's grace. That they can pick their own selves up. Right? We run into people like that all the time. I don't need God's grace. If you, you hear a lot of them say, what do I need to go to church for? You guys are doing the same thing we're doing. There's no distinction. But it should be. Right? We should be radical. So the most highest grace cannot help you until you are desperate enough to receive it. And trust me, he'll break you down to the point to where you will receive it. Now, I know there's difference of opinion. We have Arminian, Arminianism. We have those who have a Calvinistic approach to the scripture, right? And our Arminian brothers believe that God looks through the corridors of time and he sees who's going to choose him. And then he goes back and writes their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the problem I see with that is that if God looked through the corridors of time, which he can, the only thing he would see is our sin. And the only thing our sin motivates a holy and a righteous God to do is condemn us, to judge us. Right? So it takes a working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and God draws you to himself. And it's all done by the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. So therefore a holy and a righteous God can justify an unholy and an unrighteous people through the work of his son at the cross. Amen? People tell you, oh, there's all the ways to Christ. There's so many ways to be saved. No, there's not. There's only one way, and that's through Christ. 
Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's very specific, and it's very to the point. He didn't say I'm one of the ways. Right? So we come to the parable of the vineyard workers. This morning I want us to look at a parable that I've never heard a sermon on. I've, I've never heard one on it. And so there, this was a challenge again for me. Right? And I definitely never would have imagined preaching on this. It's not one of the more popular stories. And why is that? Because it strikes at the heart of our sense of fairness and justice. Remember, Jesus is still talking about the kingdom here. So our mode of thinking in this world comparatively is contradictive to what Jesus is saying, how the kingdom is like. Right? So it strikes at the heart of our sense of fairness and justice. Incidentally, what we're going to do this morning is a good method for studying the Bible. We'll start with reading the passage and then make some observe, uh, observations. Next, we try to interpret the passage by asking, what does this mean? The who, what, when, where, and why? And how can I apply what God is saying to Scripture in my life? And then we move to the application or conclusion what does this mean to me? So this brings us to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And we're going to dissect each part of this scripture when I read it. Okay? We're going to go through and see what Jesus and why Jesus used this parable to explain the kingdom. Okay? Verses 1 through 16. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These lads worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first last. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory. We thank you, Lord, that 
You sent your son to die for sinners. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for every breath that we breathe. Your word tells us that because of you, we live, move, and even have our being, Lord. You're not just a part of our life. You are our life. Heavenly Father, again, I ask you to remove me out the way, and you have your way this morning in this service. And may hearts and minds be open to this, Heavenly Father. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we see here in the book of Matthew is quite, as I mentioned before, is, is quite different, right? So we're going to dissect every part of the scripture. If you will, look, at, look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of, the ho- of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into a vineyard. Now this would have been typical scene in the days of the Bible, right? Just as we have employment agencies today, in in the first century, there were places where day laborers gathered to seek work, right? And these workers were unskilled at a trade and were near the bottom of the social economic scale. In other words, they were looked at by society as nothing, the lows of the lows, right? These workers didn't have any skills. They didn't have any certificates or certifications in anything. They were there so they could hopefully find work. So they would gather in this marketplace, just like people would gather now at different agencies, like temporary agencies and things of this nature. So they gathered to seek work, and these workers, as I mentioned, were unskilled at a trade, and they were near the bottom of the social economic scale. In fact, many lived at the level not far above beggars, the homeless, right? They worked from job to job, many of which lasted no more than a day because they had no guarantee of work beyond what they might be doing at the time, right? So what we're doing is we're giving a background of how these workers' attitudes, we can kind of see how they're, why they're attitudes, because we're, by nature, rebels. So we can see by their nature how Jesus is comparing this parable that he's telling to us, to the kingdom, right? How it's going to be. But faces how the verse is how the world sees them. So he's using this as an illustration. So not many uh, lived at a level, so they were not far above beggars. They worked from job to job, many of which lasted no more than a day. They would gather in the marketplace before dawn to be available for work or hiring, right? So working in a vineyard was not easy work. At harvest time, which was about this time of year in Palestine, the grapes had to be picked. Right? often in temperatures of 100 degrees or more. From experience, I can speak to this because working in, uh, at most where we supply metal for Bodine and all over the Northwest, you have temperatures in those furnaces that's about 14 to 1,500 degrees. When, he, when we raise these furnaces up, it sounds like an airplane passing through there. All this energy, magnesium and, and calcium and proteins and stuff, inside this furnace makes it very hot. And I can tell you this, it reminds you of what hell is like. <laughs> I mean, when you, as soon as these doors come up, you sweat instantly. I don't care if it's wintertime or summertime, right? So just knowing how hot it is, these guys are out in 100-degree-plus weather also, 
right? Just as the corn and soybeans in our area have to be harvested when the weather is good, so too grapes had to be picked quickly before the weather set in, right? And if, if for some reason the grapes were slow in ripening, the time for harvesting could be significantly shortened. Consequently, the grape harvest was a hectic and demanding time, right? Now, these workers were promised the pay of a denarius. Now, this was about the wage of a Roman soldier at the time, right? While this might not mean much to us, it meant a great deal to those listening, those standing there. Being a Roman soldier was not the most prestigious job, but it was higher up the social ladder than the common laborer, right? So we see this at a workplace most of the time at our jobs, I'm sure. You have those who don't make much more than you but think they're better than you, right? But because they're on a social, a certain social status, that means that they're, in their minds they're better, right? So we can kind of relate to how this story is beginning to unfold, right? As such, the promise of a denarius to these workers would have been quite generous. And so they agreed to this rate with the great eagerness. Now, the equivalent of that denarius today would be about 50 bucks. So if we think back to like the 50s, my dad was telling me how it was back in the 60s and 70s, how gas prices was 40 cents, 30 cents, and they made like maybe $10 a week. That $10 a week today would be like maybe eight, $900 to us today. So we could see, just think about 2,000 years ago, what 50 bucks was like. They could do a lot for a family, right? Now, this particular landowner's property obviously was large, and so he needed more laborers to get the job done. So let's look at verses 3 through 7. It says, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. Keep that in mind. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. What we see here, I want you to focus on the phrase, I pay you whatever is right. Okay? Okay? And verse 5 shows us that these workers, no doubt, trusted the owner as a man of his word, right? Because these workers at 6, what did they do? They negotiated the contract, right? These guys went simply on the word of the landowner, slash Christ, right? So they trusted this man as a, word, a man of his word. While the owner does not promise a particular wage, these workers knew it would be fair. Look at the phrase in verse 6. It says, and found others standing. Now, in this parable, this does not denote laziness, okay? But rather unemployment. That's why, they, that's what they did until someone came to hire them. This pattern continued for, continued for the hirings at the third hour and the sixth hour and the eleventh hour, right? The Jewish workday began at 6 a.m. And this was called the first hour. The third hour began at 9 a.m. The sixth hour began at noon. The ninth hour began at 3 p.m. And the eleventh hour at 5. It is at this point where the parable takes a dramatic turn. 
By the 11th hour, 5 p.m., the work on most plantations at this time would have been winding down. By the 11th hour, a lot of times, these things would, people would be going home, people would be leaving the workplace, they would be leaving. Yet on this particular day, it was different because of the generosity of the landowner. It is clear that he is interested not only in his vineyard, but also in the unemployed, the social misfits, those who were considered scum of the earth. So from this, we see there are two types of workers. One, those hired early who went out to work after negotiating a wage. And the second, and those hired later who went to work without a contract, choosing the goodness of the master. They didn't negotiate anything. Do we see, are we starting to see the comparison here of why Jesus is using this example? Let's look at verse 8. It says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Wow. This goes against everything in everything that's normal. It's usually first come, first serve, right? As usual, Jesus flips things around, doesn't he? It's not what we would expect. Grace is not something we would expect. Right? This is about the owners pay, pays the workers. The typical mode of payment back then was first come, first serve. Not surprisingly, Jesus turns it around to last come, first serve. I'm sure those who worked all day were beginning to get a bit confused at this point because if we look at verses 9 and 10, we see, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So now we can start to see that though Jesus does not say it, the implication here is clear. All the workers up to those hired first were paid a denarius. Now, as I mentioned before, because of human nature, we can imagine how the laborers who worked all day felt as all these workers got paid one denarius. Right? Let me kind of give an example. Say me and Craig, we go out and we mow a yard. And we leave in the morning, or we're, we're both up at this point where we meet at, it's 6 o'clock in the morning, right? And Craig has negotiated his contract, and he, so he leaves at that time. So he's out there in the scorching heat, mowing, moving limbs out of the way, all day long sweating. And then here I come at 5 o'clock in the evening, right? Work for one hour, and then the, the owner comes up, and we both standing here. And I'm, anybody in their right mind would be thinking, well, okay, well, I'm going to get paid real good then because if he's giving this guy who worked one hour $50, then I'm going to get paid a bundle, right? No. So we can kind of see by human nature why these workers were starting to get a little attitude behind what they were seeing here, right? And even though, like I said, the implication is clear, all the workers up to those hired first were paid a denarius, but, and because of human nature, we can imagine how these laborers who worked all day felt as all the workers got paid the same thing. The natural thought would have been if the owner gave them 50 bucks for working one hour, those of us who have worked 12 hours stand to gain a bundle, right? So, however, their hopes, again, were dashed. They received the same pay. 
Now the workers complain in verses 11 and 12. Let's look at that. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Verse 12, saying, These lads worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We see that the attitudes now are beginning to head south. Right? Working in a vineyard, as I mentioned, was very hard work. It involved laboring on a hillside in the heat of the day with few breaks, if any. We can sympathize with these workers. We can understand their complaint. Their joy quickly turned to anger as they realized that they received the same pay as those who only worked only one hour. As such, they were determined not to find or to leave until they received satisfaction. So we look for satisfaction from God. We look to have our prayers answered all the time. We, reserve, we think we should put God in a box and whenever we need to pull him out, he dispenses blessings. And God is not a genie, he is God for a reason. Amen? However, we find that this is only a symptom of the real problem. Right? Which was that they were upset that the landowner had made the other workers equal to them. That's where the problem lies. So they feel like we did all this work, we've done all these things, and so we should be paid the best. Now, let's look at this, the kingdom. Let's look at the world. I've done all this work. I went to church. I've read my Bible. I've been baptized. I should be getting blessed. See how legalism can easily slip in? Then, whenever we take the focus off Christ, we're depending on ourselves. And trust me, you don't want to depend on yourself when it comes to holy and righteous God. Right? Let's look at verses 13 and 15. The owner responds in these verses. Look how he responds. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Right? Hmm. Here the owner completely refutes the worker's argument with a crushing blow, right? The word friend is not the term for a close friend here. Let's look at how the context is laying it out. But rather a casual companion, right? Since the landowner only addresses one person, the implication is that this friend probably was the spokesman of the group. The big shot. The one that thinks he's better, right? The owner then clearly states, I am doing you no wrong. And he asked the question, did you not agree to work for Daenerys before 6 a.m.? That morning they had agreed with the owner on a price for their labor. At the time, 50 bucks was fair, generous work, wage for their work. Both sides had lived up to their end of the bargain. What the landowner paid other laborers or what the landowner did with his money was no business to anyone else. God chooses to do with his creation what he chooses to do with his creation. 
he has sovereign will to do so. Who are we to question that? That God would always have total power and control over his creation. And his will will not be undone by the creation. Amen? He's sovereign in everything. So I totally blew my mind when I was getting this together because I've never, it was a challenge. But the more that you see this, the more you read into this, and the more you keep it in context, you're constantly seeing more of God's grace, more of God's sovereignty, more of God's mercy. And he does with his creation whatever he wills to do with his creation. We're no one to question God. So as I mentioned, both sides had lived up to the end of their bargain. What the landowner paid other laborers, as I mentioned, was no one else's business. In fact, if the landowner had wanted to give half of his wealth to one of the workers, he would not be unjust in, in doing so, right? And we would admire him for his generosity. Then Jesus brings the parable to its appropriate end in verse 16, right? He says this, so the last will be first and the first last, right? So in the kingdom of the Most High, our perceived position makes no difference because God shows no partiality. Right? There are no favorites. In God's economy, things are often just the opposite of what we expect. Grace has an edge to it, doesn't it? It's challenging and even disturbing. And if we're honest, we'd have to admit that grace even scandalizes us. What do I mean by that? Grace is not the way we normally do things, right? How do we apply scripture like this? Do we simply accept, accept the fact that others may be saved later than us or will do less work than others in the kingdom of God? We should get to that point. We should be able to handle that, right? After all, it's God's kingdom, not ours. But there is more in these scriptures that God wants us to learn. I see at least four application areas here. One, grace reminds us that God's favor is a gift. You see that? Remember the problem in this text. It is not the injustice of a mean and cruel landowner. The problem is the scandal of a gracious and loving farmer used in the parable. Verse 15 asks the question, are you envious because I am generous? Right? One of the most harmful sins that we can commit as God's children is taking of God's grace for granted. If you will, let's, let's look at the more sovereignty of, of the Most High. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. starting at verse 15. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 15. This is on the sovereignty of the Most High, right? A lot of people won't touch this. Why? Because it goes against our very nature. We don't like the fact that God is sovereign. Right? A lot of times we ask, who is he to be sovereign over me? I got choices in my life. I got a sovereign will. No, you don't. 
Your will is designed to be built against him. We're going to see this in Romans 9, starting at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardened whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one's vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Right? So Paul poses the question to a lot of times of what people are going to be asking. Then how can, how can he find fault in us then? Right? Who can resist his will? And he comes back and says, well, who are you, old man, to question God? You find that story also in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1, about the story of the potter and the clay. Right? So Jesus does what he does with his creation, and we're no one to question that. Hmm. So, as I mentioned, there's more in these scriptures that God wants us to see. And like I mentioned, the, the, the problem is the scandal of the gracious and loving farmer. That's where the problem lies. If we that we commit as God's children is we taking grace for granted. See, and if out of this Romans nine sixteen, we can see that He's always and always will be in control. Now, it's so easy to take grace for granted. After a time, we come to demand grace, just like these workers of this parable. Right? Verse ten says that they expected to receive more. In verse ten, they expected that. We start to expect things from God. Or demanding him. Okay. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as merit. God's grace is granted according to his good pleasure. You may discover that there was another parable that made the rounds during this time of Jesus in this version. The workers who came last worked so hard they produced more than all the others put together. They earned the salary they got. No. That makes more sense to capitalistic Americans, doesn't it? Right? But that's not the story Jesus told. Everyone got the same no matter how much they produce. Many of us identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers and employers. Strange behavior baffles us. Right? But let's not miss the point of the story. God dispenses gifts, not wages. 
If a wage is what we want from God, the Bible says that our salary is already figured out for us. If it's a wage we're looking for. If we want to be rewarded for our merit, if we want to be compensated for our work, then Romans 6.23 spells out how we will be paid. For the wages of sin is death. That's your wage. But if we want to receive what God wants to freely give us, then the last part of this verse offers us something far better than just compensation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God's favor is a gift. Let me mention two truths that can radically transform our thinking and the way of living. Here they are. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. That was chosen before the foundation of the world in his sovereign will. There was nothing in us good that God chose and said, oh, well, I see some good in there. I'm going to choose him. Oh, no, no, no. Mm -mm. Secondly, grace keeps us from looking down on ourselves. How many of us have ever struggled with feelings of incompetence? Have you ever experienced discontentment? Ever hoped that for a greater gift or a more important ministry? Have you ever thought of someone else being more important than you? Hmm. Have you ever felt inferior to others in the church and thus less important? Think with me for a minute about those who were not hired until 5 p.m. They watched and waited while the other workers were hired. They knew that they would probably not get paid that day and that they probably wouldn't be able to buy any food or dinner that night. All day long, they were passed over like a boy chosen last for kickball. Right, that last little boy on the basketball court. Nobody ever wants. These workers were leftovers, the least skilled. Who in their right mind would pick them? These workers really represent each and every one of us. When you think about it, what do we have to offer the Lord? Think about that. Does he need our intellect, our strength, our money, our good deeds? No. Let our confidence and joy in this life be based on not on what we have or do not have or on what we do or don't do. Rather, our confidence is on who we have, Jesus Christ. For on the last day when we stand before our Savior, there will be no distinctions between preachers and taxi drivers. No one is worthier than another to receive salvation because we're all unworthy. Not worthless, but unworthy. Number three, grace makes us equal to everyone else. Right? The workers complain in verse 12, and it seems to fascinate me. It's, they say, you have made them equal to us. Wow. That's a pretty bold statement. The all-day workers don't complain about their wages because they knew their wages were generous. They're upset or angry because they wanted to be superior. 
The word grumble here is in the imperfect tense, which means that they complain not just once, but were in constant state of grumbling. So this helps us see what kind of workers they really were. They didn't say, you have put us on a par with the latecomers. Instead, they grumbled, you have put us on a par, put them on a par with us. In other words, they were not only dissatisfied with what they themselves had received, they were also envious of what had been given to the others. Have you see that? They emphasized that they bore the burden of the work in the sweltering heat of the day compared to these upstarts who only worked an hour. These workers thought they were a lot more worthier than the others. Remember, we're still talking about this first verse in, verse, in chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like. Totally against what we think. Right? There's a part of us that wants God to give us grace so that we can compare ourselves with other people. And if the truth were known, many of us think God has given us an A. While others are failing the class. Remember I said the standard that we put a lot of times comes before God's standard. If our life is not based off the word of God and our standard is not based off the word of God, our standard means nothing. Do we put ourselves above other people? I want you to notice a tragic chain of events that took place in the hearts of these workers. They started by comparing themselves with others. And by doing so, this led to coveting, which led to complaining, which ultimately led led to criticizing. If so, Stop comparing yourselves with others, right? God declares that in the economy of grace, we are all equal. No one is better in God's kingdom. Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, challenges us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Friends, let's stop being so hard on other people. Stop looking for things that don't seem fair. Refuse to criticize, but it's, it's ironic, isn't it? We want grace for ourselves, but we don't want to give it to others. Grace applied to us always seems good and nice and right, but grace given to others, frankly, disturbs us. Grace offers us a fresh start. The Christian life is really a series of new beginnings. That's what grace is all about. No one is first and no one is last. I'm no better than you and you're no better than me. You're no worse than I am and I'm no worse than you are. We're all covered by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the blood. That's why Jesus used such radical language in verse 16 about the first being last and the last being first. Notice what he said. So the last will be first and the first last But I also want you to look at what he said in the last verse of chapter 19. In the verse immediately preceding this parable, he says what? But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. He totally changes the order of our think pattern. 
how things are ran on this earth. Doesn't it? The first and the last, last and first, all seem to blur together. It's as if Jesus is, is telling us no one is better here. To make the point that first and, and, and last don't matter anymore in the kingdom of the Most High, grace is not about finishing first. It's not about finishing last. It's about not counting at all. It's about having a do-over, a fresh start, whenever we want it. This is the miracle, the wonder, the scandal, and the shock of God's grace. It's truly not from this world. For no one in this world would have thought of something like this. That song says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim. I have nothing to bring. Right? Here's the good news for sinners. Free grace. We're all sinners saved by grace. When we get to heaven, there will be no contest to see who was the most deserving of God's grace because no one deserves it. Right? There is only one contest when we look back and see what we were before. When we see the pit from which he rescued us from, when we recall how confused we were, when we remember how God reached out and placed us in his family and how he held out his hand and we see Jesus face to face who gave us eternal life, who gave himself for us. This is an amazing grace. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people, Lord. And even though these times now are testing and tribulations are arising, Lord, you have raised up a people who will stand no matter what. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that he made for each and every one of us. We thank you for the gifts, Lord, that your gift of grace, how you have lavished it on us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and how the blood cleanses us from everything, Heavenly Father. We thank you for everything that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.